0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside the Digital Health and Sales Locker Room. I'm your host, Josh Pappas. Episode number 23, we feature Danielle, who helps run an out-of-pocket course on how to build a healthcare call center. Super fascinating episode as we dive into everything healthcare plus operations. Make sure to subscribe, rate, review wherever you get podcasts and enjoy the episode. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Danielle, and uh, we do a little origin story. So, would love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners and kind of describe your journey into healthcare.
1: Absolutely, thanks so much for having me. Really pumped to be here. Yep, my name is Danielle. Most people call me Depot, so you can pick whichever one you want. My healthcare story is probably similar to a lot of uh, immigrant folks who have aspirations to become a doctor, and that's where I started things off. I. Had an undergraduate career in biomedical engineering or a degree, excuse me. Was pre med for a while, somewhere between Orgo 2 and learning about what medical devices were. And I decided it'd be pretty cool to build more things that could impact hundreds of thousands of lives. So I decided to make a little bit of a pivot at that point and focus on the device side of things. And that was my entry point into the rest of healthcare. So a lot of research and a lot of med device. And ditching the doctor route.
0: Yeah, no. Well, you made it much further than me, even on that path. Um, you know, I kind of you know, got into the back door on the sales side. But interested. I know you've worked for you know some different companies, but you know, kind of once you went down that device path, kind of talk about the learnings there, and then um, kind of what brought you to what, what you're kind of doing right now.
1: Yeah. So devices went went about it in a few different ways. I was also doing a ton of bench top research more in uh, some of the behind the scenes like drug development work as well as proteins and and so on, which was more cellular biology research and that was one part of my interest in healthcare, but jumping into the device side worked a bit on ocular implantations and actually my first entry point was in packaging. So that was like shelf life analysis, understanding that medical devices need to be packaged in a specific way by FDA and just a lot of the rules and regulations that go into bringing something to market that you don't really think about and aren't taught at school. But I've always had an itch for entrepreneurship and early stage. And so after I graduated college, I decided to travel abroad and go back to Israel where I'm where I'm from uh, and join a very early stage company there. The biotech and broader health tech scene in Israel is incredibly lively and booming. And I had the chance to join. That's probably the third employee and just worked my way from the bottom all the way to growing the massive sales team. But there what came in and we had this idea for a medical device that could be manufactured the same way as metal but would be completely integrated into the body. And so this could be applied to a screw that you put inside your body, to a plate, but all with this novel material. So I was involved in patent writing and then bringing that all to learn about what we'd actually make with something that could be manufactured into pretty much anything under the sun. So that meant a lot of traveling to conferences and working with doctors. And that's where I started getting super fascinated with the world of design thinking. Because you're in front of all these people and your inclination is to ask them what they want. But the reality is you start observing and noticing some of their inefficiencies that they're not even seeing. And you start having a bit of a voice in what you think would actually make a difference in their lives. And, and so I, I wanted to explore what design thinking meant, what, what how I could apply that in my world and applied to a PhD program at Cal in Berkeley And decided to pursue that while consulting for that same med tech company I was building the device with. And in med devices, luckily you have time, right? Because FDA is going to take their time. And so there was no product in market. It was just a ton of R&D work. So in, in the time that I got to work in the academic side of things, it was a ton of research and design thinking, helping engineers ask better questions and learn about how to actually listen versus just learning how to build which is most of the engineering curriculum and loved it. I worked at Samsung too at one point in their consumer side of things. So it's got to see an entirely new industry, all in research, but in a totally different field. Ultimately, there's many reasons why, but the PhD didn't end up sticking. And I left after getting my master's just to take a leave and bring that product to market, that ortho product. So that was amazing seeing something I built for the first ever prototype with my bare hands being implanted in human bodies. And I think that's the really, the arc every person in the device world wants to see at some point in their lives. So I had that and, uh, that was amazing.
0: Yeah, no, it's I... super fascinating.
1: <laughs> no, bad. <Ben. laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super fascinating because I think that people, you know, people like no medical device, but until it either happens to them or their family, it's kind of, you know, happens in the background. Like, right. You go to the, you know, you go to the doctor or you have, you know, whatever medication, but it's not until, you know, somebody, or, you know, usually sometimes, you know, something happens that you kind of, you know, get geared up and with the device. Right. And, um, I had a, not a, not a similar, but I had a crossover that kind of got me into where I am now more on the digital health side. But I remember right out of, my early sales medical career got connected with some boston scientific folks that were doing some neuromodulation and you know, started chatting with them and thought device was the route that I was going, um, you know, at that time, right, it had, it had changed pretty sure. significantly as an industry, but I'm super thankful I connected with those guys ended up getting more on the front end to the biotech, but, um, but it's super fascinating space, Um, you know, there, and as I'm sure you've seen, it has changed, Uh, you know, pretty rapidly along with everything else in this, um, you know, digital health kind of post COVID. I'm sure you've seen you've seen that firsthand.
1: Yeah, I would say for me, maybe my exit point of device didn't didn't grant me as much purview into a lot of the changes on the device side. And also it's so the things that you learn in device is that you're selling to a very narrow part of of the market in healthcare. And oftentimes that's just dictated by whatever practice or specialty you're going after. So in our case it was podiatry and orthopedic surgeons. Both of those were totally different. And their practices changed a lot, I'm sure during COVID with the growth of ASCs, or ambulatory surgery centers. And then the whole company shifted a lot as we brought new products into the market, which touched on different specialties in sports medicine. Uh, It was also my first purview into sales and med device, which for many folks that don't know, is a very different sales cycle. And you're very hands-on, to say the least. So I was in operating rooms all the time. And I was guiding doctors in surgery around how to use supplies and all the different kits and the order of operations and whatnot, and training 200 reps to be able to do the same when I left the room. So a lot of what we have in our mind as an engineer and a builder just gets trickled down to so many different voices that you need to design things that make sense at the the last touch point, and they make sense for the manufacturing side. So this whole system architecture was something I was already really drawn to, coupling that with regulatory and sales and be able to translate clinical value from engineering best practices and and talking that talk with doctors. But I guess going back to the original question, I started getting really tired of just the sales motion over and over because at the end of the day, growing a market is a lot of sales and a lot of flying. And I was in the Bay at that point Where tech was powering so much of our ease of use. And this was 2018. Still, digital health was very early. And I was curious about areas of healthcare where incentives actually aligned for patients to be able to choose something. So, you know, patients didn't get to choose what implant went in their body, which is just crazy. Now that's changed, but at the time, that wasn't how it was. And I got to meet the Founder of Better Health, and that was before there was even a Better Health, and was eager to get back to the early stages. So that's kind of how I ended up at Better in 2018, and let Ops, and then grew that whole company, and now doing something else. But I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. It's 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 such a good point, right? Because I think, and um, you know, I get questions all the time when I get into digital health sales, and we'll dig into that a little bit, but. It's sure. like, well, what, well, what do you want to do? Right. Because for some people, um, uh, managing some of those relationships and getting into the operating room like you, you can't really recreate that in any other job right i mean that's kind of a once no. in a you know lifetime i, mean, I should be fortunate I, I was telling you we interviewed for a couple and i you know got to sit in on a neuromodulation one during that process and i mean i still remember that as and it wasn't necessarily in the or right but um i still remember that as a pretty uh, significant and so if you like that type of you know adrenaline rush and um you truly are that uh you know, that, that liaison point. Um, and it's a perfect segue for segment we do. So we have some medical and you know, healthcare sales folks that listen to this, but I'm sure you're interested, uh, the top and bottom sales stories. So, you know, maybe your kind of best and worst experience being a part of the sales process, either on the device side or at better health or any of your other experience, but, um, what's something that stands out, uh, that maybe is your, your best and worst?
1: Yeah, best and worst. I think really things were rough in the early days of trying to describe a medical device that doesn't exist to a doctor who's so used to holding things in their hands and it's like a very hardware driven role. So they're like, is it like this or like that or like this? And so you would just spend 20 minutes explaining something. And it was just this broken record thing. And the best thing we did at that time was actually just make a prototype. And we would go up to doctors, and rather than say the whole spiel, "It's stronger than bone," da 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 da, we would say, "Try to break this," and we'd give them this implant, and they would just like with all their might try to break it. And then I think one day I was just carrying this one implant for so long that somebody like actually broke it. Oh my god! Uh, so it was like a best and worst sales thing because when it broke, you're like, oh. Mm-hmm. I've just been carrying that for like so many years. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Yeah, and so, yeah, nothing like seeing seeing is believing, though, in any sort of industry, and uh, that that really came up all the time. But yeah, th- that was the best and worst.
0: Yeah, no, that's that, that that's awesome because it's like, oh yeah, don't break this, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, being being able to do that, and uh, you know, I I think it's also that's one of the big advantages of um. You know, of being on the device side, is you get to work kind of in tandem and build a relationship with the physician, and um, you know, more and more as things are shifting, enterprise as you know, other in- entities are, are kind of gobbling it up, right? Um, it's it's a much more different sale when you get into, and I'm sure in your digital health, um, you know, side of yes. things, you're not necessarily working with the physician, right? So, kind of maybe talk a little bit about. What you what you enjoyed about working with the physicians, and then you know, kind of the the competencies as you go more on the digital side and what's maybe needed there to sell to a little bit of a different audience?
1: Yeah, I mean selling to physicians and working with physicians, of course, the right physicians that are bought into the the same future and vision and then have the time and bandwidth to take on consulting or advising. Um, it can be great. You have, you can be really lockstep and then you can parlay those relationships into the masses where they get to speak at conferences, co-author papers, have more clinical support. So they can be a really big sales engine beyond just the collaboration on the clinical side of things or the design side of things, bringing in their colleagues and so on. Um, but in the digital health world, you know, the sales cycles just look really different. As a B2B company, selling within organizations is super hard to spot probably the right stakeholder because ops specifically, obviously that's my domain. It it The needs that you have in terms of why you'd even be looking for a vendor could be much more product focused in other orgs or data focused in other orgs. And so I think ops tends to be a bit gray in terms of like, are, are you the decision-making? Are you just another stakeholder? What does ops mean in your org? And so finding that right person internally, if you're doing B2B sales, I imagine be quite hard. A lot of the sales motions that I was going through were more on prepping for like payer side of things or even sales in negotiating vendor agreements for the supplies we were carrying or just generally a ton of different vendors that we're doing for many parts of operational work. So I'm happy to double click on any one of those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. So it's a perfect segue. So healthcare ops, right? I guess the first, what is kind of your definition based on your experience of, um, you know, of, 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 what healthcare ops kind of is in your purview. And then I'd love to dig into, uh, you know, some of the kind of challenges or struggles from starting that from scratch with what you did with uh, better health.
1: I think healthcare ops is sort of the engine that powers everything is the way I'd look at it. And it can be engine because it can be very, loud and concentrated and really chugging along, you know, other than just the broader analogy, but it's also the fabric. It's the tapestry. It spans so much of the different parts of the organizations and so often has the best purview into everything else going on by necessity and by usually proximity to challenges. So, so it has this benefit of being everywhere and, and also trucking along a lot, which is amazing in terms of the types of challenges you get to solve, but also challenging because prioritization and just orchestrating and navigating so much of that is really challenging. And when it came to better health, it's funny to say now, because it was like five years ago, but that was like very early healthcare ops and none of the tech stack that exists today existed then. Right. Your company's only a couple years old, and so to solve a lot of the issues that we were solving, we like super hacky. Finding HIPAA compliant vendors just like didn't exist, and there was a short list that like th- myself and three other folks would just like share emails over, and be like, "Oh my god, they're HIPAA compliant! Can't believe it!" You know. Now this kind of table stakes. I think a lot of di- just broader health um, tech companies want to get into digital health, and there's finally a pull there, or um, that wasn't wasn't there. So at the time, there were like, huge tech barriers to just get anything stood up. And early on at Better, it was a lot of regulatory challenges because being a medical supplier, what we were by uh, legal standards, and so we had to just stand up a legal entity. That was definitely my wheelhouse, like just kind of device days to a certain extent. There's so much overlap in healthcare. It's, it's a regulated beast that drives itself on systems that you have to make efficient to formulate it for your own use case, but then somehow brush up against all of the inefficiencies at the same time. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's super, it's kind of crazy to think about that was what, like five, six years ago. And so what you're talking about not being able to find HIPAA compliant vendors and like it almost seems yeah. like a pastime, but it's know. Um, you know, relatively speaking, not that long ago and how much has changed. And you talked about some of the technology, but I, I'm I'm interested, how did you guys... You know, I think people take for granted all of when they come into an organization and there's workflows and there's, you know, documentation. And how did you guys kind of approach, um, you know, building out some of these processes? And then I guess, you know, is, have you seen, is it technology that has the biggest to be able to put some of those, or is it still more just, you know, finding the right, you know, people and, and, and writing some of those processed out? Kind of talk through that, that journey of mm. uh, building those from literal scratch.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on documentation. It's a loaded word because documentation sort of can mean a lot of things depending on what part of the organization you're in. So like a lot of documentation around company building is how do we get aligned in remote environments using documentation as that anchoring point towards understanding what the heck's going on. And then documentation inside of a call center is like how do we know what workflow to use when at what time point. So there's so many different definitions of documentation. And my hunch is you're probably more interested in the workflow stuff and not the company values type of form of documentation.
0: Yeah, no, I mean I've seen as as you know, like super early stage, both become almost you know super critical. I guess maybe to yeah. frame the question this way, I mean, you know, companies you've worked for, companies you've seen be successful, kind of in whatever definition of successful that you want to, um, you know, take it yeah. on. Like what, what are the key areas on the ops side that you see are kind of, you know, must-haves uh, to, to really be a successful, well-oiled or get to that next level as a company, early stage to growth stage?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of what, what we can do better is sometimes you end up relying on your software to become what is your limitation of workflow design. And you don't even know that you've put a crutch on yourself. And so one of the ways you can kind of decouple from any software changes or software limitations is to have a really strong data stack on day one around even just patient data. So obviously doing so in a HIPAA compliant way, but a trap I see a lot of folks run into is over leveraging their CRM to be both the source of truth of patient information and then automate every single workflow on top of that, or try to nest too much documentation inside of a single tool. That obviously you, there's slippery slopes everywhere in there. But I think that if you have a strong data architecture working on that on day one and then deploying data to different points and software that you're using to manage different parts of your ops workflow is what's going to allow you to be really agile with whatever changes you need to make, especially if like your services change or your actual tech side changes, because that data stays there and uh, a lot of hyper segmentation of that data. So to make that a bit more concrete, you know at Better Health, we were working with over 20,000 SKUs that each had uh, Hicks, picks codes, quantities, volumes, things like that. We did a ton of work in building a data infrastructure that will allow us to call into any single product SKU, be able to do price transparency, price uh, calculations based on your eligibility, things like that. And so building tooling based off of the things that you know aren't going to change, and hyper-segmenting your data to allow for very creative permutations on top of it can be just an awesome way to build your tech stack on a really strong foundation. And a lot of really important hacks that we learned early on was building tooling very quick and dirty on software. Things like Retool or any other kind of low code, again, pulling from that data source but not storing that data and nesting documentation within that application. And so a lot of documentation is designed to be guardrails for things you should and shouldn't do. But if you're in the middle of an interaction with a customer, then not you won't remember that you weren't supposed to do that thing unless your software kind of told you and popped up notifications or things like that. So the segmentation I always put when it comes to documentation your original question is, is it patient-facing or is it behind the scenes? And if you're expected to do something in real time and or patient-facing using those interchangeably, then it needs to be really obvious. And it needs to be part of the tool that you're actually going to be using in that moment. Um, Whereas if it's behind the scenes and you have to open 20 drawers to find that document, it's okay. I mean, it's not great. It's frustrating, but you're not going to, It's not going to lead to a bad patient experience and it's not going to lead to a really mission critical mistake. And then I would say my other framing that I put when it comes to documentation pulls on my med device background, which draws from FMEA, which is failure modes effects analysis. And so when you use that in devices, you basically say, if this were to fail, uh, what is the consequence or severity of it failing and how likely is that to occur? And so that's how I think about documentation, too, or a specific workflow. So if you have this like mission critical part of your operational workflow, that if it fails, your whole thing is catastrophic, or if it fails, it's going to very significantly impact the patient and it's likely to fail. That's the first area I would focus on to make sure that's really, really airtight.
0: Yeah, no, that's 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 super key, and especially some of those are big decisions that you're making at a point in your company when you're just like, let's just get the first couple <laughs> customers in there and onboard it, right? But like you said, particularly on the software side, it's like everything's going to build upon here, right? So there's, um, yes. you know, quite quite literal, you know, big decisions to be made, and when building the house, um, so let's switch gears a little bit and super excited to get into design thinking right? And some of the work there and maybe just give for those, uh, including probably myself that are a little bit more unfamiliar with the concept, uh, the application and uh, anything else that might be you know, actionable to kind of pull through in, um, in, in people's day-to-day life, whether they're in ops or whether they're in sales or, or anything like that.
1: Sure. Yeah. Design thinking is in itself a process for both customer discovery needs uh, discovery, which is what we call them design thinking, all the way through prototyping and creating solutions. And it hinges on a few different principles. The first is that you research a lot by understanding problems. And we have several techniques for researching, which are incredibly effective tools that you can uh, apply inside of your organization. I'll touch on those. And usually from research, you work to synthesize what you're hearing as needs and you create like need statements, for example. So a customer needs X or even an employee needs X to solve Y, for example. And then you move into prototyping and designing solutions that meet those needs. And usually when you're in that phase of the design thinking process, you're going for volume and you're going for a lot of creativity. And you're really trying to see what are some awesome, unique ways that maybe someone's never even thought of from there, you you can use a host of other methods inside of that to decide on solutions and then try them out and then run back more research on them. And so it's kind of this circle, if you were to look at it cyclically on these different quadrants, I can send you a great paper of of the framework I like to use. Because design thinking in its core is an academic research field, but it got popularized a lot by The industry. So you had folks like IDEO and Frog, and then it became this race towards like having the most sexy framework to be talking about the same thing. So you kind of adhere to a single framework, depending on your school of thought. Mine roots more in academic, but the way that it can be applied a lot to me is about remembering your users. And so when you are internal inside of your company, sometimes you forget that your own user can be another employee. And so that kind of draws back to what I was saying with documentation about where is that employee? What are they even looking at when you're trying to design documentation for them? Are they looking at 50 tabs? Are they looking at one screen all the time? Do they have multiple screens in front of them? What does their workplace look like? And really uh, looking at things from a very qualitative observant point of view to feel what they feel in that moment? Do they feel panic, right? And then you start getting into a bit more emotional understanding of where they're at. Um, So this idea of stepping into the user's shoes is really the overarching mindset you want to have in all of this. Um, And then there's just how to ask good questions. It's just really so unobvious because we have this tendency to want to design solutions really, really fast in organizations and be incredibly convergent with the way we ask questions. Yes. No. Do you like this? Do you not like this? And if you were to talk to a product person, they would have a lot of the same principles of design thinking because there's a lot of overlap in those things. So one of the frameworks I love is called why, how laddering. So it's this concept that You can ask somebody why, like, um, why do you need to wear those headphones? Well, because, like, they have better quality. Why do you need better quality? Oh, because it's super important for a podcast to have better quality. And as you ask more whys, you get deeper and deeper into a person's value sets. And then if you were to ask hows, they'll tell you how they manifest those value sets into actions. And that's, like, a really easy way to toggle between understanding somebody's deeper meanings for things and then how they solve for them, and to discover deeper just insights into a person's point of view in life. And the also kind of thesis is that if you design for everyone, you design for no one. And design thinking hinges on the fact that you should be really focused on the cohort of people you're designing for, and you would be surprised how broadly applicable that is beyond just that. And that's another big trap we fall into in designing is we, we over index on on broad and then we don't really understand anything deep. Um, in the call center world, you know, we did a ton, even sorry pre-call center world, we were just starting nascent zero employees. The first thing we did was user research. and we spoke to as many people as possible who were living with that certain condition that we were trying to solve. And we did not design a single solution for like two months of just understanding user needs. And if you do that work up front, like I promise your solutions will be better for it.
0: Yeah, no. And there's lots of actionable takeaways there. And uh, we'll make sure that I get some of the framework information because I think I think people try to do elements of it, but it's sometimes a half-ass effort, right? Or, or it's just, hey, like we're a startup. We don't have time. We got to go, go, go. But taking a step back and... And and really being able to, particularly in sales, right, it becomes even more paramount now to ask questions, understand the pain points, understand the ROI. And, um, you know, our, our company and our founders, kind of the founding team at Tendo, you know, one of the areas that when I joined resonated is they spent a year listening tour, right? So... They set out to kind of come into healthcare, and they said, "Well, you know, we want to design a new EMR. Believe it or not, that's what they kind of the central thesis." And then after talking to you know the users, nobody had desire for EMR. But then talking to patients, clinicians, and um, you know spending that time in multiple different areas, that's kind of was the birth of, of Tendo, right? So I think being able to design some of those you know principles and talking to some of those folks before you even start to actually build the software or product uh becomes becomes super critical. Um so you mentioned call center. So I think for a lot of people that are maybe, you know, even in healthcare, right, um talk to you know talk to some of those on what call centers, the function they uh kind of produce in healthcare. And maybe uh we can dig into, you know, some specific use cases and the importance of it. But um I think a lot of people understand call centers, right? But probably not necessarily in the healthcare context. So would love to uh, kind of dig in deeper there.
1: Sure, I, I define call centers. I use that interchangeably with the word contact center and contact center is the more modern approach towards the whole industry. And so call center is somewhat antiquated. In your head, you might be thinking of a call center as a room full of folks that are picking up the phone. Obviously that's no longer the case, In healthcare and most other parts of our support systems, because it's texting, it's chat, it's support pages, and so the the umbrella word that folks use now is contact center. I use call center just because it's still colloquially, I think, where where we're at as an industry, or at least in health tech, and most folks seem to seem to understand that. So, yeah, traditionally, like let's say outside of healthcare, a lot of call centers are for support. So I have an issue, my pet food didn't arrive, call someone or I got the wrong size thing there. But in healthcare, that's part of what call centers do, but it's certainly not all of what call centers do. And so the way I bucket it is like three big buckets. So there's lead management, and then there's care support, and then issue management. And so we covered issue management, care support in my head is that biggest bucket where folks, that could mean everything from a clinician supporting somebody all the way down to troubleshooting a billing issue, because everything that relies on that, the care of that individual, I, I bucket there. And phone and other modalities of reaching out to people are also utilized to achieve that. And oftentimes in early stage, until your tech is there, you leverage more like phone or email as those like intermediary tools until your tech can fully support it. Um, And then there's lead management. So a lot of times you'll see this in healthcare where if you're a D2C company, you'll be acquiring leads, lead forms will be filled out, I'm interested in the service. And then you got to call them back Um, or maybe you're a B2B company and you get a list of patients that are potentially eligible for your services and you need to reach out to them. And each one of those it it sort of overlaps with other parts of the organization, sometimes cleanly, but usually not cleanly, right? So if it's lead management, maybe you're working super closely with marketing because there's flyers and there's other kind of elements towards your campaigns that are not just phone. Other times in care support, you would have uh, more connections with the clinical teams or product teams and then on issue management, that's kind of the more cut and dry care support that we're used to and where most of the tool stacks already nicely aligned there. But oftentimes their software fits, has to fit all three of those different use cases. Often, and then you know, other times it doesn't, but that's where it gets tricky, right? Because to be able to call 5,000 people is a very different core competency from a software side than it is to triage issues on a one-on-one basis. So finding that like perfect right size fits all for the right stage is really really tricky, and so software selection can be a big, a big sticking point for for doing that right up front.
0: Yeah, and I think everybody's had a potential similar experience, right? Where you know I can go and do a lot of app type you know, solutions in everywhere else in my life, but chances are if you know if we're gonna. You know, schedule or have you know some of those issues with, uh, yeah. with with you know with healthcare or anything else? Like typically, you ask ten people on the streets of San Francisco and Charlotte, chances are they're going to have to call, right? So you know, I guess maybe talk through how you are seeing some of, you know, is, is it, is it rapidly evolving in healthcare based on some of the work you've done and that you've seen, or are we still kind of, you know, really behind on the entire industry when it comes to, you know, some of those best practices around contact centers?
1: Good question. I don't want to overly generalize. I think for everyone and indefinitely call centers will be a living, breathing challenge that industries in perpetuity will will be trying to solve. So I think nobody's really cracked the code of efficient call centers and how to make them better. They get increasingly more as, challenging as you get bigger and as you offer more services. So I think there's definitely a lot of optimization to be had there that we're all trying to figure out. So yeah, so I think there's... There, it's moving, I guess, just judging by the fact that there's more and more softwares that even care about healthcare in the first place, right? Like I went back to that HIPAA compliance that wasn't there before in, in some of my use cases. And I think one of the biggest issues that folks run into is actually, and, and maybe this is me projecting, but not calling it a call center early enough. And many folks are like, oh, we just schedule stuff or, Oh, we just, we're just calling this list of people. And so when you're early, you think of it as like a job to be done. You don't think about it as a department or something that you're building with a lot of intention. But the funny thing is like, so if you looked at it as a call center, you would suddenly unlock software. That's going to save you loads of headache, making tons more efficient that you just didn't even know was called call center. So something I encourage folks to do is think about at what stage does not does it even matter if you call it a call center or not? It can be a one-person call center, be a 500-person call center, but you'll start to Google search differently. You'll start to just look at the industry. You'll shift your mindset around KPIs, org design, and tech, all three of those things to support what you're actually trying to do for patients. So I think some of it is a mindset shift in terms of areas we can improve on. And uh, I, I think it also is about knowing your business, right? Like what, how... Of what time point are you going to be phasing out a phone or are you going to be growing into phone and just kind of being real about these channels and each one of them in the evolution of your organization and staffing them? I think that's a big, big, big part of where folks don't realize that this is a very headcount intensive part of your business and many tech founders are used to tech solving a lot of these pain points and don't understand that it can be... Um, you know, it's a lot of humans supporting humans, and if you were to use an online calculator, I've posted about this before, to see how many people you need to support, even twenty calls per hour, at a at a strong service level agreement, you need four and a half people to do that. Right, so just like folks try to cut down on on really core parts of it, so they don't invest in their software. Or they might not be investing in the help in the people side of things and so you just create a really inefficient system on day one so there's lots of ways we can mitigate that but i think really approaching it like something that needs to be developed and thought through is super important on day one
0: yeah i know it's 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 super fascinating because what you just described i think is oh we're not ready for that or oh we'll eventually get there but um once you once you look right, at a, right, right, at, a, right. at a macro level um, and, and all it takes, I mean, I think everybody's been there and to be proactive about it is super forward thinking, but then everybody's been on the other side where it becomes, you know, pants on fire, all hands on deck with one, yeah. one, one bad patient interaction that causes ripple effects across yes. the entire organization. And I've been a part of it where it's all of a sudden all hands on deck, RFP, we're doing call center. And it's like, oh my goodness, now this this fire drill because, you know, patient's gone from bad experience. Yes. All of a sudden is writing a bad Google review. All yeah. of a sudden is contacting yeah. the health, health system partner. And yeah. it yeah. is, I'm sure you've seen some some horror stories like that, right? And uh, you, you never could be perfect, but I do out. think that that it's, um, you know, it's something as a, as a small company that uh, more and more founders are going to have to think about and um, would love would love to perfect segue into, like, where are you seeing some of these operation innovations? So outside of the contact center, I mean, what are some of the four areas or technologies that you're, um, you know, interested on seeing that might have a big impact on the healthcare ops side?
1: Yeah, yeah. One, one thing I, I'll definitely answer that. I wanted to just close the loop on something you brought up, which was these, like, when stuff goes on fire. And that's certainly something that I hope in a perfect world, we never have to deal with. And for patient experiences is never what we want, but how we respond to them was something that our founder was incredibly um, focused on. And I learned a lot from her leadership around making sure no matter what you end every patient interruption in a positive one, even if you are in the right. And so doing we would uh, implement a root cause analysis after every poor patient interaction. So that would give you an ability to do like a retro on that experience. And then we would always end the cause analysis. Like, like did we actually close the loop on that patient? And our founder would get on the call all the time, uh, on a phone if needed, had a drop of a hat for a patient. So there was always that. And then there's like the whole continuous improvement function you can build very early so to your point of like, am I ready for the software or whatever, like those might feel like one-way doors, but there's a lot of two-way doors that you can build on, on day one. So like your quality assurance, listening to calls, um, having a good practice on coaching, having more templatized scorecards for interactions, all the things that if you are ahead of ops today doing that you plan to be growing out of and hiring more folks to do, thinking about templatizing yourself or trying to implement ways that you can oversee more folks doing that function through QA, coaching, and so on, and training. So you can't discount training. It doesn't just happen in the beginning. It's got to keep happening. So I I like to look at best practices of call centers at a 5,000 call center, and then kind of what's the seed version of that that's applicable to me when it comes to the daily behavioral operational elements of it, not just the software side of it. Uh, but I can actually now answer your question. <laughs>
0: no, no, no. I I I, I, I think it's super critical because the reason why I love that is I think in a lot of areas, particularly in growing startup, is tying the loop and just making sure for good or bad, did we answer this? Did we follow up on this? You know, when Absolutely. there's a million other things going on, is such a small nuance. But I think by doing that, you're kind of creating yourself as a one percent of other companies. Right. Because normally it's not that people don't want to do that. It's just that sometimes the pull through on that is, is lacking. So I love, um, you know, I think that's transferable no matter what company, what size company you are. Um, you know, for sure. But yeah, some of those areas of innovation and I'm interested in, you know, some of the technologies that you might see have, have kind of an impact on healthcare ops.
1: Yeah, definitely hate to say it, but love to say it, you know, the generative AI space is definitely, is definitely of interest on the op side of things. You could see it applying in so many different parts of clinical workflows. For example, you could see it applying in documentation or even in support interactions. Companies like Forethought, I think are doing a great job at it or retrieving information. So I'm, I'm personally really excited about that. And, It'll be cool to see how companies self self design a i for their needs too like I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of cool b two b companies, but I'm excited to see like folks that have really heavy tech teams what they're designing internally to make their own systems more efficient that's gonna be cool um I think a lot of it a lot of more like localized medicine or or more like partnerships with hospitals that aren't the the big ones that you can actually have more local presence in will really greatly support operations teams. So areas where you can understand, like get in there early and start getting more tactical on day one of operational improvements. And so you know, better, we were growing some B2B side of the business towards the end of my time there. That's very similar sales motion, honestly, to the device world, right? Like you're trying to convince folks that, might have a workflow already in place to change something operationally about what they're doing. And so I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity there to actually be able to get your foot in the door that's in not just a massive health system that you have no visibility into, but a smaller one in a local, maybe facility or, or boots on the ground or more folks that are willing to be part of that early operator partnership, going back to what we talked about earlier. Other areas that I'm excited about Prior, just broadly, also like food as medicine. That's just a personal interest of mine. Well yet to be seen how it impacts ops. I hope it does, though, just as like a trickle down from our whole country and access to food and supporting that part of that part of our very core puzzle piece of healthcare. But um, that's that's of interest to me. I think billing automation would be another area of interest and seeing how we can become much more efficient at the fee-for-service part of our business of healthcare. So like folks like Candid Health, I think that they're you know taking a really messy problem and applying much needed tech into something that many people didn't want to touch for a long time. And it's where the money flows in our country. So that's just super critical operationally to improve on.
0: Yeah. And I think that... We're starting to see some of these partnerships that would, like you talked about in 2018, when you had no HIPAA compliant, I mean, some of these partnerships—if you were to be like, "Yeah, here, are all these people that are partnering in local, you know, communities, food, all yeah. of these ones," you would have been like, "No way! There's zero percent chance. I wouldn't bet anything on it." But it's super critical, right? And I think you know, North Carolina is an interesting case study because. Um, in Charlotte, which is, you know, metropolitan, but, you know, the vast majority of it is super rural, right? And the vast majority of, uh, you know, of patients are in rural areas, whether it's kind of near the beach or near the mountains and, um, almost, you know, by necessity. And I know Medicare came out and talked about a innovative primary care model that's basically going to be, we have to do something different. Whoever is talking about care coordination, we're going to basically incentivize yeah. people to work within all those different areas that you talked about. And um, I think it'll hopefully, right. uh, I think it definitely takes time, but there's always been some writing on the wall, but I think to truly do it in certain areas, certain markets, like it's almost going to be, you know, necessary to bring those superpowers together.
1: Yeah. And actually what, one thing that you had sparked and it's a wonderful point to consider, of course, the rural parts uh, where access to healthcare um, is, is very challenging. So, yeah, there's the virtual solutions, and I think that'll continue to be really important. But uh, w- something that's really interesting, too, is more of like the autonomous vehicle movement right now in San Francisco. My sister just took a driverless car home. Um, that's nuts. Like, that's what she took instead of Uber. And you have companies like Neuro who have these much smaller autonomous vehicles that are just designed for loading groceries. and as they continue to grow, hopefully have more regulation uh, in there, they can access a lot of places that we just couldn't access in delivering food as medicine, just as an example. So hopefully with with that change too, we can work on some of the broader challenges that we have that are pre-even needing that healthcare interaction, right? Like living a healthier life and having access to better things and produce that today we just don't have in, in certain parts of our country. So
0: no, that's yeah. that's that that's 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 wild, uh autonomous uh vehicle, but right? I'm all for it. Uh, so final final couple segments. Uh so I guess your rookie healthcare uh operations advice. So I'm interested if you had to give you know people, I guess, tips if they wanted to kind of go into healthcare ops, maybe in the digital health world, number one, kind of what would be needed, and then also too, maybe in the device. Like what would be, um, you know, something that, that would be needed? Because those are kind of two, I think there's a romanticized version of going into the digital health side, right? Without necessarily knowing sure. all the challenges and tribulations, but uh, maybe touch on those two areas on, you know, if people are considering going into, um, you know, different segments on the op sides, maybe some of the differences and what to look for um, in your day to day.
1: Yeah. Look, a lot of healthcare isn't glamorous. And you talked about stuff being shiny. And I think that's important to just check that at the door. I have a lot of feet pics on my phone. <laughs> and it's from implanting and testing out thousands of implants on feet and toes. And did I think that that's what my life will look like for a period of time? No, but that was uh, a step towards in bringing something novel to clinically change orthopedics works. And that was just the beginning of it. And in my very design thinking philosophy that I carry with me, a lot of it comes from experiencing challenges firsthand or really getting in the trenches to understand what you're even designing for. And so in ops, what I would tell someone is don't, don't shy away from roles that maybe in the short term you might see yourself outgrowing, but see them as opportunities to get in on the ground floor of a challenge, and be able to design solutions based on actually having had those challenges yourself and designing for yourself. At Better Health, our my founder and I, you know, we were on the phones like that was our first job, and I took thousands of calls, and I would design the software stack and the documentation to support my own workflow, and that was amazing, right? Like how Rare is it to be able to design things that you get to actually benefit from too. So I think one piece of advice I would be is like, I would have is just be open-minded towards getting to to try the most basic part of what your value, what your value prop is, right? And not to be too, too pie in the sky around what it is that you'll be working on day in and day out. So that's one, one point in both worlds. And in digital health, I think, Ops can be so culturally specific to different organizations. And so again, not, not trying to overly generalize here, but I would ask yourself if, you know, what part of ops really intrigues you? You could look at ops as sort of product operations. So are you more interested in the product side of things? Maybe you're really interested in care operations and how, um, even phone support works and more of those triaging of being really close to the customer interactions and wanting to be deep in there. Um, there's also people ops, right? Like all of the HR world and so on. And so ops can be incredibly loaded in the early stage and then start segmenting. So thinking about those intersection points that you you would want to be involved in early can be a good framing towards thinking about where you fit organizationally. And Yeah, I would say those are my two points of advice. I mean, ops in in devices. I think that, again, it's very company specific. I, I wore so many different hats throughout all of my med device career that it's hard to even call it ops. I was designing product. I was selling. I was doing market development. And I have a bias towards early stage. So I like the diversity of never being able to call it one thing. Even now, you know, I cook pop-up dinners and I'm a chef. And also I help people build build call centers. So I'm not sure I'm really the best person to tell you exactly (laughs) what what box to fit into. Um, And ops can be a good home for folks that don't know what box they fit into, but are constantly craving system designs and data architecture and process refinements and just kind of lose sleep over how to improve things and uh, make things better for patients. So I think that a lot of type A folks end up gravitating towards ops anyways. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's what comes to mind
0: no it's 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 super critical and i think i give the similar advice where you and i are probably cut from a similar cloth but not everybody is nor would i wish some of the early stage you know chaos on people because i do think there is totally. something to be said about learning some of the fundamentals learning from people that have your deep experience oh, yeah. and then you can always kind of wade into those waters or, hey, some people are just built different and they want to, you know, jump into the shark infested waters. And, um, you know, there's obviously, uh, you know, some embracing the chaos. Um, all right. Final, f- you know, final segment, uh, you know, on the on the clock plug, I uh, would love to learn about uh, the course that you guys are putting together and then also to just more broadly um you know what's going on in the world of uh, danielle on a professional this is your uh your chance to you know brag and, and give the shout outs
1: oh man thanks josh uh, thank you again for having me here yeah so when i was deep in the trenches of building uh op stuff from the ground up the a lot of it is is pretty tough to do in a vacuum right we don't we don't all grow just by trucking along and working only in our own periphery, but that's the reality of working at a company. A lot of times it's hard to zoom out. Not all of us are as proactive as you talking to so many folks during during uh, work. So I think it's awesome what you're doing, but I didn't have that and I didn't have community. And so we, myself and Nikhil, and he runs out of pocket, kind of thought to ourselves, like, what are ways that we can support healthcare operators and one of the first things that came to mind was to design a conference for them. So last year, we spun up what was called Knowledge Fest, which was a conference just for people in operations functions. These are folks that wouldn't normally get invited to a conference because they're day in, day out working, but folks that could benefit the most from it. So we had sponsors. Uh, we had an amazing day of really collaborating and getting into the nitty gritty together. And that kind of evolved into another conference, which we're hosting later this year at the end of October. We'll be releasing applications for that very soon. So stay post. Well, you can follow me on LinkedIn. And if you don't already subscribe to out-of-pocket, I don't know what you're doing. It's a great newsletter. And uh, that's where you can also find jobs on their uh, job board. But we decided to also help in functions that I more vertically needed help supporting. So obviously, KnowledgeFest supports the day-to-day trenches more broadly, have a community of other folks. But how do you actually tactically spin up a call center when you don't have one at all? Or you're just getting started on one? Or to your point, you don't know if that's the right size for where you're at right now as the company's evolving. So we built a course to help people build a call center. And uh, that's launching again in July. And we are still taking registrations for that and are filling up that cohort for July 11th. So any folks that are trying to build a call center right now or in the midst of all that process, I highly encourage you to check it out and you can uh, do so through out of pocket as well through the courses. Danielle, professionally and personally, I straddle multiple universes. I am big in the food world as I alluded to. I cook Peruvian food, which is the other half of myself and really connecting with folks over a mutual love for food and culture. So I do a lot of cooking and I write about food. I kind of try to make it more digestible and fun to learn about our food systems. If you can tell, I'm a huge researcher and that's a part of my DNA. I'm now applying that to food. So I write on Substack, an awesome newsletter. If I do say so myself. And um, I also still advise. I advise founders, I angel invest, and I help operators work through the trenches and act as a second brain as they're navigating lots of the short-term and long-term challenges and try to be that support system, having been there myself.
0: Awesome. Um and I think we'll make sure everybody has all the call center information, the food information equally as important. Um, and oh, yeah. curveball. So so I'm coming so if I came if, if somebody was coming to San Francisco, you had to give them two mm. restaurants to stop into, what would they be? Uh flavor let's, you know, just call it June June fifteenth, two thousand and twenty three. Where 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 would you send somebody um not knowing anything about their food taste?
1: So I think for lunch, you got to go to Beit Rima, which is uh, amazing Arabic comfort food style. It's great value, delicious food, and just awesome atmosphere. And then for dinner, I think my take would be two options. I'll give you two dinners because I think that if you're in San Francisco for one night, you should do two dinners is my take. So I would start the night off at ABV. Which is a cocktail bar, but has amazing food. So start there and then walk your way over to Heirloom Cafe, which is a almost feels like a European little pocket of someone's home. And it's Californian style. So definitely fitting for, for your night.
0: Perfect. I mean, that's making me hungry here on the East Coast already. So yeah, uh, Danielle, yeah.
1: time for you. I'm going to let you go.
0: <laughs> exactly. Danielle, thanks for joining. And uh, we'll make sure, super fascinating on everything healthcare and ops. And um, look forward to following the success of Out of Pocket. And definitely make sure to go and follow that if you're not already doing that. And uh, look forward to following the growth of everything that you're involved in.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. And uh, fun to stay in touch.
0: Thanks Thanks for listening to another episode of the podcast. Special thanks to Danielle for sharing all of her healthcare knowledge. Last day to register for the healthcare call center course is Monday, July 10th. So make sure to register and check out the course in the show notes. Special thanks to all the guests and um, make sure to follow, subscribe rate and review wherever you get podcasts inside the digital health and sales locker room. We're rolling out a special referral program on Substack uh, that includes some sales resources, some one-on-one sales brainstorming sessions. So make sure and share on Substack or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks.